It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Good evening, everybody. Uh, we're carrying on this evening in uh, the series that we describe as the greatest sermon ever. And like every other preacher in the series, I'm not talking about this particular sermon. I'll leave you to decide whether it's the greatest sermon ever. I know what I think, and I've, I've done it a couple of times already. Um, what we're looking at this week is this passage which we've uh, just had uh, read to us. Um, from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, passage which is described here as the salt and light passage. Now, some of you might be thinking, hang on, weren't we in the middle of Matthew chapter 6 last week? Here we are back in Matthew chapter 5. Well, there's a reason for that, uh, a very prosaic one. That is, when this sermon series started, it wasn't a sermon series. It was originally going to be a one-off sermon about the Beatitudes, those sayings that start off, blessed are those that, and so on. And it's just going to be one sermon. It turned out to be uh, two sermons because I was asked to preach two uh, Sundays in a row. I thought, well, actually, I'll fit it better into uh, two sermons. And then Nathan thought it was a good idea. We carry on throughout um, the, the, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, unfortunately, during the first of those ones, the reading I selected included this salt and light passage. And uh, Nathan understandably thought that I was going to be preaching on that passage as well in the second of the sermons. And I wasn't. I just put it in for a bit of context. I wouldn't say I put it in for fun, but it was there just to give a bit more explanation. And by the time we realized that we were missing out this bit, um, all the other men who had been asked to preach, some of them had very efficiently and very proactively prepared their sermons. And uh, rather than telling them, oh, I start again, we're going to move it all back. We're going back to this passage now, having got halfway through chapter 6. It seems a, a good point at which to return. And it helps us to look back as well as looking forward. Because this passage really applies to the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, even the bits we haven't got to yet. Uh, so, Jesus uses here a couple of pictures, a couple of ideas, uh, like, like sort of mini parables to uh, uh, get us thinking about how we live and how we behave and so on. And the first of them is uh, salt. Now, I don't know what goes through your mind when you hear the word salt mentioned. Uh, some of you know that I like my food. And contrary to popular belief, it isn't just chocolate that I like. It has been mentioned a couple of times recently, um, as explained to Nathan earlier on, that I rather like mince pies as well. And he was I mentioned I had a mince pie this afternoon, and Nathan was saying, a mince pie? So soon? Or something like that. Um, I told him I've already had about 
18 of them uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, so, but when I hear the word salt, what I immediately think of is one of my other favourites, chips with salt on and vinegar and preferably with a bit of fish as well. But I, in, in, out of deference to any vegans amongst you and vegetarians, I've only put chips up there. And we, we enjoy putting salt on our food. It gives a bit of flavour to it. But actually, going back to well, it's still true today, salt is also a preservative. And I'm not quite sure what was in the back of Jesus' mind when uh, he used this illustration, whether he was thinking about taste or whether he was thinking about uh, uh, preservatives and so on. But either way, it works. And he's saying, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the salt of the earth. Do we bring flavor to the world, to the, to, to the land in which we live? Do we bring preservation to it by our actions and our, our manner of life? I've heard whole sermons preached on this verse, going into great detail about how salt can lose its saltiness. Um, I'm not going to bother with that. If you want to know, look it up. It's to do with all the impurities. You end up just with impurities if the salt itself, I've told you now, uh, if the salt has been washed away, uh, it's no longer, you might have something left in the bowl, but it's no longer salty. Throw it out and use it as something to walk on, a, a path. The remaining salt might kill off the weeds and things like that. But the picture there is that we have value in what we do. Uh, our saltiness is going to make a difference. We are to be the salt of the earth. And the other picture he uses is light, illuminating the darkness. Let's read what he says. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. I'm not sure that Jesus might not have made a little comment of reservation, because do you light a lamp and put a bowl over it? Well, clearly some people do. Um, not quite sure this, but it, maybe it's the difference in our cultures and the fact that we have... I mean, I haven't counted the light bulbs in here, but back, back in Jesus' day, if you wanted to light a room, you put a, a, an oil lamp on a stand, probably in the middle of the room, and let it just shine out. And that might be the only light in the house. Poor people might not have been able to afford them, so they, they would either sit round the fire in the glowing embers of, the, uh, of a dying fire, or they'd go to bed when it got dark. The idea that you would have a light and then hide it it would be foreign to them. Nowadays, we do things like this. It looks like a mushroom there, doesn't it? Uh, we, we do things like this as a mood and make a moody feel in the room. I don't mean moody like a sulky teenager, but uh, you know, making it look a bit romantic or something like that. It's not a practical thing. Uh, but back in Jesus' day, if you lit a lamp, you wanted everyone to see it because it would illuminate. And we are called... Uh, described as the light of the world. And we bring light to this world. The light that God has given us has revealed to us the truth and the, uh, the, the wonderful things that he has done uh, that shine through us so that we have an impact upon those around us. We illuminate the darkness in which we live. And Jesus says... 
Uh, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I will think a bit more about that, but again, that might just ring a little bell with something I, I said about two or three weeks ago, beginning of Matthew chapter 6, where it says, be careful not to practice your righteousness, to do your good deeds in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And just in case you're wondering, there seems to be a bit of a clash between, you know, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, and don't let them see your good deeds. And the point that Jesus was making, we do not do our good deeds. In the context of Matthew 6, it was things like giving to the poor or praying or fasting. We don't do those things in order to get a bit of approval from others for ourselves. Oh, look at him. Isn't he generous? Look at her. Isn't she so spiritual? She prays so well. Oh, look at them who are fasting. How sacrificial they are and glorifying them. No, Jesus is concerned about us glorifying God. But what are these good deeds that he is talking about? Well, let's look at the sermon as a whole. Um, I think some of my words are disappearing off the edge of the screen there, but never mind. The, the Sermon of the Mount, and the Mount start, as a whole starts with those sayings which uh, I call the, the Beatitudes. That's from the Latin. I'm not normally into Latin, but so many people have called it that. It even says it in the headings in the NIV here. Um, but it's blessed are those. And... They, and that those sayings really set the whole pattern for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It describes the sort of people that we should be if we're going to be following Jesus Christ. It's the sort of people we will turn out to be through following Jesus Christ. And we'll look at those in a little bit more detail again, just as we try and unpack what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And then... He goes on in the rest of the sermon to give example of, of what that means in our lives. It's all about godly, faithful, righteous, good living. And it's one thing to, uh, to, to talk, say oh, about good living. You can get into the trap that Jesus is really trying to expose in the Sermon on the Mount uh, of falling into the whole thing of legalism. You do all these things and don't do those things. Everything will be fine. God will be pleased with you. You will get salvation. And he's not saying that. A lot of people over the years have taken the Sermon on the Mount just as a, an ethical sort of textbook. Do this and you'll be fine. Actually, what he's describing is the realities of trying to live for God. And if we, could, if we read through the Sermon on the Mount and said, I think that's fine. I can do that. I am like that. I'm, I'm, I'm perfect then we've actually missed the whole point of what Jesus is saying. It's as much there to show us how far short of the glory of God we fall, as much as giving us guidelines on how we should live. Now, a lot of the things that he says are negatives. You know, don't do this, don't do that. And a lot of teaching about how we should live as Christians follows that sort of pattern. But what would you, how would you describe... Uh, the, 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 the more positive side of it. It's all very well saying, don't commit adultery, don't lust after people, or don't, don't murder, don't hate people, don't, 
be at, at war with them. Don't be angry with them. But what would be the, the things that you do? What is the righteous way of living? Well, surely in the context of marriage, it's that the couple love each other. In the context of the people we don't get on with, those that we might hate or that we might be in animosity with, falling out with, we are to love them. We are to, called to love our enemies. There's a positive way of living. And we can get some sort of idea of that by going back to those Beatitudes where we all started this. Oh, there they are. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungering for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, and peacemakers. There is another one we'll come to later. Let's just unpack that very quickly and very briefly, but ask the question, how is our saltiness? What's our taste, our flavor like? If people were to uh, rub up against us, would they feel, here are people who've got what it is. There's a flavor to them. There's a, a preservative oozing out of them. What is your saltiness like? Okay, let's look at the first one. Poor in spirit. Are you one who is humbled and has been humbled? One who actually feels unworthy in and of themselves? You say, well, how does that start off being the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Well, it's actually the rea being realistic about who we are. If you want to get serious with God and, and live and walk with God, you've got to acknowledge what you yourself are. And in that sense to realize that we are poor in spirit, that we need to be humbled. It would help at this point if I actually got my notes out in front of me and tried not to remember everything. Yeah, there's a sense in which uh, being poor in spirit, you know, humbled and feeling unworthy, not proud, not arrogant, not boastful. Not someone who thinks everything is about them. Who not someone who thinks that you've got it all. You're so good and you're so wonderful that everything just is, you know, you don't need anyone's help. That's not the sort of person that we should be because if you feel that way, then you're deluding yourself, folks. It's recognizing what we are. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why Jesus came into this world to suffer and to die for us. Mourning, grieving for the state of sin that we find in our, in our hearts, but also in the world around us. It bothers us. If, if God has touched your life, you can't walk around and see the, the, all the difficulties and the sin that goes on. You can't look at your own life and think, oh, well, I, I don't need I don't need anything. I'm fine as I am. You know that you're not, and it grieves you. There's some people who will quite happily say, yeah, I know I'm a load of rubbish and, uh, and I'm really sinful and I'm quite pleased about that. No, a Christian, someone whose heart has been touched by God, who's been born again by the Spirit of God that now dwells within them, is going to find that, that clash within them between what their own sinful nature desires and what the Holy Spirit of God desires. And it will, they will feel grieved and they will be mourning about it. 
person who follows God is to be a person who is meek. Not, a, not thinking that everything is all about them. It's all about me. It isn't. What I, it's not about what I can get out of it. The meek person is not self-seeking. There's a humility there again. There is a desire to put others first. We'll look at a couple of other passages later on which, which bring out some of the realities of that. But you think of passages like Romans 12, which I'm not going to quote later on, where it says, do, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather with sober judgment. It's not about me, and it's not about any of us. It's not for any of us to say, it's all about me. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what God has done for us. And we are to be people who are meek. At this point, we have to uh, say yeah, that's not the way the world thinks. The world looks up to those who are brash and boastful and proud and arrogant. And, and they, they fear those who are bullies. If any of you fancy yourself as an alpha male, take heed and think about what that actually means. And just for balance, and if you think that you are going to be alpha females, again, think about it. We're going to look, talk later on a little bit about the fruits of the Spirit, which, where we read about qualities like love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's a big thing, isn't it? That's being meek. It's not putting ourselves first. How's your saltiness doing so far? Do you feel that maybe the salt's getting washed away a bit? Do you see a need to, <laughs> to have that saltiness restored? Because unlike the, the physical salt we have in this world, the saltiness of a Christian can be brought back. It can be, have another sprinkle, if you like. Hungering for righteousness, wanting to, to be righteous, wanting to see righteousness in the world, and hungering because we know we can't do it ourselves, hungering for the righteousness that Jesus gives us, declaring us righteous, declaring us perfect in God's sight because of what he has done for us on the cross, not because of what we have achieved. Hungering for righteousness. Being merciful. Think of the fruits of the Spirit again. Being merciful, being forgiving and gracious. How's your saltiness? What's your flavor? What's your taste like? Are you people who are known for being merciful, gracious, forgiving? Or are you known as people who are vengeful, bitter, resentful? These are things that are not terminal problems. They can be changed by the grace of God. More of that later. What about pure in heart? It's not, <laughs> purity isn't just a matter of outward appearance. What people see, you know, the person who comes to church on a Sunday and everyone thinks, oh, what a good Christian he is. Do you see him in work the following Monday? Do you see her in the shops arguing with the cashiers or whatever? Do you see someone who looks great on the outside, full of good deeds and wonderful uh, uh, things going on, but whose heart is corrupt. There have been so many well-known people, celebrities, 
uh, as it were, who have been known for their charitable actions and the, uh, the good works that they have done. And then in the course of time, they have been exposed for the people they really are behind the scenes and under the surface. Child abusers, adulterers, even murderers. I'm not saying that any of us go that far, but purity is something that should be in our hearts, not just outward appearances. And then peacemakers, are we people? How's our saltiness doing? Are we people who work for reconciliation, to bring peace between people, between man and God? Are we that sort of person? Okay, let's have a look at some of the other passages that, uh, that, where this sort of thing comes uh, and, and bears upon us. How about Galatians, verses 16 to 26? I'm not going to read through the whole of, the, uh, the whole of that passage, but it's the passage I quoted from just now, the fruits of the Spirit. But verse 16, so I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. And then he goes on and describes what the works of the flesh are and things like sexual immorality. Well, let me read the list. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. That's not a matter of having to tick all of those boxes before you are described as being ungodly or something like that. Any of them are, are, are wrong. I, I suspect that there are people here who have never been tempted into witchcraft. But I wonder how many of us could say that we've never held hatred in our hearts or um, had fits of rage or selfish ambition and so on. It's, it's not just the headline grabbing stuff here. That's the acts of the flesh. The fruits of the spirit I've read already. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And it's important to realize there that they are the fruits of the spirit. These are things which we don't have to try and grit our teeth and produce within us because the Holy Spirit who lives within us as Christians is one who bears this fruit who is working in us to change us and to bring out these fruits in our lives we are not on our own in this and it is the work of God in our hearts and our lives where these things start to go uh, verse 25 since we live by the Spirit let us keep in step with the Spirit the older version, if we walk in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And walking with God, walking in the Spirit, will, uh, will produce a harvest of the fruits of the Spirit. Well, Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 18, a famous passage. Again, we won't read all of it, but I'm going to pick certain bits of it out. So the beginning of Philippians chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion make my joy complete by being 
like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You recognize that from what I was saying from the Beatitudes about meekness, about being poor in spirit, about not being proud and arrogant. Paul's saying much the same things. Then he goes on and says we should have the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ, or the same mindset as Christ Jesus, the NIV puts it now. It reminds us of how self-sacrificing Jesus was. He Although being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. That's a a slightly different translation to the one that we may be used to. Scholars have argued about how to translate this verse over the years because of the the, the words that are used in the Greek. Someone who knows about this far more than I once told me that he thought that finally the NIV had found a good translation that actually says what the the original tries to say not something to be used for his own advantage and we're supposed to be like that not looking for our own advantage but rather have the attitude of Jesus Christ who gave up everything to come and offer his life on the cross for us we're supposed to have the same attitude how's your saltiness feeling at the moment he stumbled to death And then verse 12 of Philippians 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And here's a great bit. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It's God's work. He is at work in our lives to create these attitudes, to bring about this these desires, this longing for what is good and right and proper, to live lives that are holy and pure and glorifying to God. So that when people see us, see us living out this righteousness, not just avoiding doing naughty things, but doing this good lifestyle, they, they will understand that there is something in us that goes beyond the norm because God is at work. And they'll give glory to God. More of that in a moment. There's also James chapter 3 going through into chapter 4. I reckon that when James wrote his letter, I'd be very surprised if he didn't have a copy of the Sermon on the Mount uh, with him. I don't know how they did that sort of thing, but he certainly got it in mind, I'm sure, because there's so many bits of his letter you can say, oh, that's in the Sermon Sermon on the Mount. Um, I think it's worth reading a lot more of this bit. I'll try not to weary you with too many quotes. This is the last, almost the last quote now. So James chapter 3 and verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. If you harbor bitter envy, and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, 
than peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And then later on, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And then he gives some wonderful advice here. Submit to yourselves. That word submit, that's a word that I think has been corrupted by the world today. People despise it. They, they, they think of submission as being the same as subjection. You know, where, you know, someone has to submit to someone else and it's as if they're being pressed under the thumb, you know, and it's whether it's within marriage or within uh, society or one race to another or whatever. Oh, this, you know, this slavery idea. We are called to submit ourselves then to God. Now, bear in, just bear in mind that in the passage in Ephesians where it talks about marriage and how wives should submit to our husbands. Remember that husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. But before that, there's another little verse that says, talking to the church, submit to one another. Now, does that mean we're all trying to crush each other? No, it means that we are putting others above ourselves. Making other people more important than us in our lives. Treating people like that, you know, yes, there are times when people are going to treat you as a doormat. Or you just bear in mind that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. <laughs> you ought to be there before they treat you as a doormat washing their feet. But if everyone did this, then we'd be serving each other. What you give you will receive as well from others who are giving of themselves. It's a totally different way of looking at it to the way that the world's, I want me, me, me. The Christian idea should be you, 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 giving out and being willing and not, not so proud that you can't receive from others yourself. And that's different from going out and taking it from, from them. Anyway, verse 7 of James 4. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You recognize so much of Sermon on the Mount in those words? Verse 10, though. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's wonderful, isn't it? It's recognizing who we are, recognizing our need, knowing that if we'd left to our own devices, there'd be absolutely no hope for us. And God comes to us in Jesus Christ and lifts us up. He's given us salvation, given us hope and a future. He's given us for forgiveness, shown his mercy and grace to us. We've been born again by the Spirit of God. 
not because we have earned it or anything else, but by simply putting our faith and trust in him. And if you haven't done that yet, please do. Reach out to God. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. He will not despise the person who comes in faith. So let your light shine before man. We've been talking about this being the salt of the earth and, and how, <laughs> how salty we are and should be. Um, we're using that, that word saltiness in a slightly different way to which that, the, the, the way that the world sometimes uses it. If, if someone's talking about their language being a bit salty, that's, that's nothing to do with the Sermon on the Mount. That's, that's not good. No. Uh, maybe that's not an expression you've heard of much recently, but um, those of a certain age might recognize it. Now we move on to letting our light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Our lives are to be lived in Jesus Christ. He has revealed himself to us. His light has shone into our lives and it's reflected out to the world. And yet we can hide it. How much do you hide the light that you have got from others? It may be simple things, but never talking about your faith. You know, maybe you go into school or college or, uh, or into uh, work. And on a Monday morning, everyone's saying, oh, what do you do at the weekend? What do you talk about? When they're talking about the clubs they've been to or the sports they've been playing, do you just talk about the football match that you've been to watch or the shopping you did? Or do you tell them you've been to church? Do you say what happened in church? Do you say how much you enjoyed it and the fun that you had and, and the way that God spoke to you? I'm not saying that you have to do that, every single detail of that. But it's so easy just to to fade into the background and whilst others are talking about the, the latest football match join in with that but not say what you spent the best part of the next day doing or when others are talking about um, some of the the sexual immorality that they're getting up to do, do you just keep quiet or do you talk about the good things that that we can experience in relationships with others when people are talking about uh, office politics, you know, ever come across this sort of thing, and the, the hatreds and so on that sometimes get expressed, do you stand apart from that and try and be a peacemaker? Or do you put the bowl over your light so it doesn't shine? When people see you, what you really are, a child of God, loved and created to be a new creation, made holy in Christ, then two things happen. Many might say, well, this is not of this person's doing, because you'd be very quick to correct them if they wanted to put you on a pedestal and say, oh, what a wonderful person. you say, no, I'm not. I just know a God who's, who's, who's good. Some, though, will take a different view. And then we get to the last of the blessed are those. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, sometimes letting our light shine, of being the salt of the earth, being the light of the world, will cause uh, persecution, opposition. 
um, to fall on our heads. But even there, take heart, because <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is still ours. There is hope and there is a future. And those who are persecuted because of righteousness are truly blessed. As we draw to a close, got one final passage. This is from 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm just going to use these words to close out uh, the, the, the sermon. I'll hand back to Nathan. But turn this into a prayer as I read it for yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the uh, family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power for ever and ever. Amen.